And please open your Bibles first to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, the final verses of chapter 4, and we will read into the fifth chapter to verse 5. Deuteronomy 4, verse 44, through chapter 5, verse 5. Following the reading of that, we will turn together to the New Testament Epistle of James, the first chapter, beginning at verse 17. We open with the word of God from Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning at verse 44. Now this is the law which Moses set before the sons of Israel. These are the testimonies and the statutes and the ordinances which Moses spoke to the sons of Israel when they came out from Egypt, across the Jordan, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the sons of Israel defeated when they came out from Egypt. They took possession of his land, the land of Og, king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites who were across the Jordan to the east, from a rower, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, even as far as Mount Sion, that is Hermon, with all the Arabah across the Jordan to the east, even as far as the Sea of the Arabah at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. Then Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances, which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all those of us alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire while I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God. And now we turn to the epistle of James, chapter 1, beginning at verse 17. James writes, Every good thing given, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness, and all that remains of wickedness, 
in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror, for once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of a person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be righteous, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, that man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, the entrance of your word gives light, and for it we thank you. We ask that you would make these things clear to us today, that we would not be ineffectual, that we would not be hearers only, but that you would make us profitable servants in your kingdom by applying to us and to our lives, to our thinking, to our words, the grace of the law of God. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll remember no doubt that the first sermon that Moses preached to the people who were now poised to take possession of Canaan, that first sermon that went from chapter 1 on through most of chapter 4, that sermon centered on matters of their recent history. How it was they came to be here. Again and again, that first sermon pointed out that their presence here, now camped on the threshold of the promised land, their presence here is an achievement not of their own doing, but only of the Lord's mighty hand, an outstretched arm graciously exercised on their behalf. In our passage today, Moses opens his second sermon to the children of Israel. And this time, his theme focuses not backward across the desert that lay behind them. His theme now, his focus now lays forward across the River Jordan that lay just ahead of them. He's about to show them and he's about to show us what the kingdom of God looks like when it is firmly established in the hearts and minds and societies of men. This kingdom of God, the doing of his will on earth as it is in heaven, this kingdom would begin with Israel 
in this tiny sliver of land that's apportioned to them among the nations. Historically, it would begin there. But Israel's role as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation was to serve as a scale model for all the nations of the earth. That is Israel's historical relevance. That's her relevance for us today. Israel's unique calling is to serve as a laboratory of holiness for the nations. Because, as we sang already today in the 24th Psalm, all the earth is his. All the earth is. Here in Israel, the nations might discover the moral dimensions of the reign of God, not only personally, though that's very important, but even at the civic and societal level. What makes today's Bible passage so exciting is that here on the plains of Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, Moses is about to reveal God's will for us. He's about to reveal God's will for us. Do you want to know the revealed will of God in all its practical dimensions for yourself and for all of human society? Do you want to know what he thinks about things, what he requires of us? Then buckle up and brace yourself because it's about to be spelled out for us on these coming pages of this book of Deuteronomy. It's about the will of God, the kingdom of God. Things once hidden, once hidden even from the fathers, from the patriarchs, even from Abraham, who is God's friend, and Isaac, and Jacob. These things once hidden are now brought into the light. They're brought to our attention by the word of God through Moses, sometimes in painstaking detail. They're ours to know. Beloved, from Deuteronomy and the death of Moses onward, there is really very little guesswork for the people of God about the will of God. Very little guesswork. It becomes very, very clear to us. At least it does in the most important fundamental issues of life. Which is why when people came to Jesus with questions relating in some way to the will of God and their place in it, when they came to Jesus, he so often refers them back to the law that came through Moses. He refers us back to the compass heading that was set at the beginning. Back to the foundations. And covenant revelation is like that. Covenant revelation from God doesn't undo what went before it. God's word doesn't make wild changes of direction along the way. 
It accrues. From Genesis on through the Revelation, the Word of God builds upon what went before. The history of redemption continues along that straight way, initially set back in Genesis 3.15. But as it does, as history, the history of redemption moves along, God gradually clears away the fog that, from our standpoint, as creatures of time and space, the fog that still shrouds our future. You and I can't see into the future. We can't tell in advance the specifics of how our various life decisions will turn out. But we have his law. We have his word. And so we know what direction we need to head. In any weather, rain or shine, day or night, God's law gives us our compass heading and shows us our duty, both as men and as nations. God's revealed will never changes But it does become clearer and better defined as he unfolds it to us through history. Things become clearer. And of course it's that way because God is faithful, God is true, God is unchanging. And this God who is faithful and true and unchanging, he condescends to meet with us in our infirmities as a race of finite fallen men. He feeds us the knowledge of his will, his revealed will, with a very small spoon. He feeds us little by little, bit by bit, through all the generations of our race. So what I'm saying is that the covenant, the covenant word that came to Noah didn't overturn the earlier word to Adam, but rather advanced it. And the covenant word that came to Abraham didn't overturn the word to Noah, but again advanced it. Neither does the covenant word that came through Moses, this law that we're about to delve into, It doesn't overturn that which came to Abraham and the fathers. The promise made to Abraham is getting now some historical definition. This is what life with your God, life in covenant with him, this is what that life is going to look like in the years ahead. God never forgets his covenant. He never lets it fall to the ground. And this is a covenant. This is covenant living that we're about to see described in virtually the rest of Deuteronomy. This is covenant living. For our part, it means that every passing generation has the duty to live by the light we've received. The generations living in the light of God's word through Moses are an enlightened people, indeed, over those who went before them. 
I sometimes think, would that all of God's people, would that all Christians saw the Ten Commandments not as some intolerable burden, not as some embarrassment, but would that we saw them for what they truly are, light and grace and glory proceeding from the very mouth of our covenant king. The most glorious hope of that generation. This law shows us the revealed mind and character, not of fallible scribes, not of fallible Pharisees, but of God himself. This is his revealed will for us as we take possession of our inheritance in Christ. So do you really want to know and do the will of God? Then begin with these commandments. The commandments may not have the details you seek about the particular school that you should attend or the particular line of work or career that you should pursue or the particular relationships to cultivate or whatever other questions may be on your mind regarding the will of God for you. But instead of these particulars, they offer you something much better. These Ten Commandments offer you the pattern of godly living without which moral foundation all of life's details fall to the ground in one great heap of moral confusion and too often regret. Beloved, let me be clear about this. When you ignore the law of God, when you live as though it has no claim upon you, no bearing upon your life, then all these other life decisions about school and work and marriage and so forth, they all become essentially moot issues. In the big picture, they don't matter anymore because whichever way you go, you're going to fail. If you ignore God's law, what does it really matter? Which pagan institution of higher learning you attend? What does it really matter? What line of work you pursue if you do it not heartily as unto the Lord? If you ignore, ignore his law, what does it really matter? Which godless man or woman you marry? Which godless man or woman raises your godless children? To ignore his law is to ignore the one true moral compass of men and nations. And without it, we drift aimlessly from one seemingly good idea or trend to the next. We drift. If we're ever to know the hidden details of God's particular will for us, and if we're to experience his blessing in it, then we have to begin by learning 
by knowing and by grace, doing the revealed fundamentals. As just as Solomon, the preacher, said as he was wrapping up his thoughts on life, Solomon the old man, he said the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. Here Moses begins his second sermon on the plains of Moab. His first highlighted the covenant grace of God in their history. This one highlights the covenant of grace, the grace of God in law. The first took him and took us from chapter 1 through most of chapter 4. This second sermon takes Moses without an intermission all the way through chapter 26. And his purpose is to remind this new generation of the law that first came to them about 38 years earlier at Mount Horeb which is another name, of course, for Mount Sinai. Moses had been a young man back then. He'd been only 82 or so. And many of the people now standing before him hadn't even been born when the Lord their God met them at that mountain of fire. But every new generation needs to hear And that's why he is relating again to them, to this new generation, what they need to hear about the kingdom of God and his will for them. He sets the historical stage for this sermon with time and place in verses 45 to 49. And we find that it is not a time merely of anticipation, It is a time of actual victory and occupation of those vast pasture lands on the east side of the Jordan River. Two and a half of the twelve tribes have already settled their wives and their children and their livestock in the inheritance allotted to them there on the east side of the river. Not unlike the church, In these last days, they had not only the promises, but the living proof of God's faithfulness to his word. The just shall live by faith, dear ones. But the just shall live not by a faith that is blind and foolish. It's a faith, rather, that stands atop a mountain of God's great victories for his people. It's why the testimonies, the narratives, the historical narratives are so important to us. That God hasn't only spoken, he's acted. Even today we're enjoying the fruit of this, of his mighty deeds on our behalf. So our faith regarding the future is well grounded. It's intelligent. Our faith is able to look not only forward, but backward as well, as we consider the faithfulness of God to his word. We have reason to believe what we believe. 
And those graves of Sihon and Og, Sihon the Amorite and Og king of Bashan, their graves testified as much to Israel by their occupancy as the grave of our Lord Jesus Christ does today by its vacancy. Moses not only sets the historical stage for this second sermon, but describes its legal import as well. This isn't just the speech he's giving. This is covenant renewal, much like our renewal of wedding vows. There are couples who, years into their marriage, renew their wedding vows. It may not be the first time the words have ever been spoken, but they're just as true today as they were when you first spoke them. It's a legally binding relationship that Moses is reminding the people here of. There are rights and there are duties. Verse 44, this is the law, he says. And if you're familiar with the word, what he's saying is, this is the Torah, which Moses set before the sons of Israel. This is the Torah, the law. Now, the law, of course, has gotten a very bad rap, even in the pulpits of the church over the last 1900 years or so. And I think this is due in part to confusion between the infallible word of God on the one hand and that of fallible men, scribes, Pharisees, rabbis, priests, even Christian pastors on the other. My word to you is not law. In the course of my sermon preparation, I try to read the scholarship that's available to me on any given passage, but I and every Christian pastor and preacher must test them by the word of God. I try hard not to quote them at length or let their words carry more weight than their worth, because the words of mere men are not the word of God. But there also seems often to be a misunderstanding of what the Apostle Paul says of the law in the New Testament. Paul says, among other things, that the law shows us our sin and in that sense kills us. The law kills us. It shows us that we're dead men apart from the quickening spirit, quickening work of the Holy Spirit. And This isn't welcome news to proud men. At every step of the way, man's natural, unregenerate, stony heart tries to root the law of God out of his religion and replace it with something else because the law brings us the very bad news about ourselves and our natural condition. The law doesn't please us. 
It doesn't tickle our ears. It tells us the truth. And the unregenerate man simply can't have that. And sad to say, there have been a few unregenerate men in some pulpits of some churches down through the ages. But unbelief aside, there are still those other cases in which a preacher, though he's regenerate, though he's saved by grace, may be simply lazy and undisciplined in his studies. Maybe he hasn't managed his time well that week. Maybe there are other things have cut into his study schedule. It's easy to preach an easy message. And the law isn't easy. But friends, trying to preach the grace of God without first preaching the law of God is like trying to shingle the roof and frame the windows of a house before you've poured the foundation. Neither God nor his people can be expected to live in a house that's thrown together like that. It's not, in fact, a house at all, but it's a shameful heap of unrelated theological concepts. Grace in a little pile over there, law stacked up over there, This rabbi's opinion, that rabbi's opinion, thrown in a little more law, a little more grace, and plenty of the way we've always done things. Dear friends, no one's ever going to grow in the grace of God without first being fed healthy, generous, frequent portions of the law of God. Like male and female, or dark and light, or summer and winter, we can only know the one in terms of the other. Now Moses describes the Torah, or the law, as having three categories of content. He mentions the testimonies, those narrative passages describing the Lord's mighty deeds among his people, Then there are the statutes, which are our duties, the duties that our sovereign king lays upon us to keep. And then there are the ordinances, or the judgments, which actually go the other direction. The judgments actually refer to the covenant rights that are due to us whether in relation to God or to our neighbor. Because there's reciprocity in the covenant. All the parties to this covenant have responsibilities, and all parties to the covenant have privileges. Given the identity of each of the two parties in this covenant, to speak of mutual rights and mutual obligations is in itself a revelation of the breathtaking goodness and grace of God toward us, isn't it? That God Almighty has given you, in his law, legal rights. It's amazing. 
He brought us out of slavery in Egypt, not simply to become his slaves, but to become his freedmen. His covenant partners in the redemption and blessing of the world as promised to Abraham. The law shows us how we're to do that. How we are to become a blessing among the nations. Today's passage demonstrates four special interests that God has in mind as he renews his covenant here with the people. We'll give our attention to the particulars of the law in coming weeks, but today we'll get to the bigger picture. First of all, it's clear that God cultivates the whole community of his people. Not just the spiritual individualism that plagues and weakens so much of the church today. He cultivates the whole community of his people. God did not meet with each one of us in the garden alone while the dew was still on the roses. Verse 1 of chapter 5, And Moses called all Israel. This is a holy convocation. A generation before, back in Exodus 20, everyone's there at the foot of the mountain, aren't they? Everyone's there to witness this betrothal of God to his people on Mount Sinai. And now, 38 years later, now everyone's together again here on the plains of Moab. 38 years later, the sons and daughters of Sinai who are now grown, now facing new opportunities for faith and obedience in the land ahead of them. Moses calls them all together, the young and the old, the men and the women, the boys and the girls. Everyone who is Israel is there. This law belongs in the ears and the minds and the hearts of everyone. It belongs to everyone. Grace and responsibility belong to everyone. Now certainly there were the Levites and the priests with a special calling and they needed special expertise in some matters related to worship. Others depended on them for that Levitical expertise. But the whole law comprehended in love to God and love to neighbor Who is exempt from that? Who among all God's people can say, this doesn't apply to me? It does apply to me. The law of God in its moral dimensions, it applied to me when I'm eight days old, when I'm eight years old, and it will apply to me when I'm 80 years old. God's covenant people are a community, which implies that the movement of those who are on the fringe of the community, the fringes of the church's life, their movement needs to be inward toward the center, 
not outward on a tangent of their own. God called not mere persons, he called a people. And it's the great privilege of individual persons to be among the people of God. Great privilege. As much as God loves me, and as sure as I can be of his love, I am not the bride of Christ. And you, the individual, are not the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And individually, we are members of it. Community over individualism. Secondly, God cultivates obedience over mere knowledge. Obedience over mere knowledge. Verse 1. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I am speaking in your ears today, and learn them and keep to do them. You see the progression. Hearing is only a means to the end of learning. And learning is only a means to the end of doing. Doing. Didn't Jesus say the same thing in John 13, verse 17, the night in which he was betrayed? If you know these things, he said, you are blessed if you do them. Even in Reformed churches, the temptation's always present to think of Bible doctrine as an end in itself. It's not an end in itself. We tend to judge the preacher by his theological content, but are less inclined, maybe, to examine our own deeds in the light of what we've learned. But you remember what Samuel told Saul. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Think that through, friends. Think it through. To obey is better than worship. To do his revealed will is better than merely to know it or even to run through it in a well-oiled ceremony that doesn't really mean anything to us anymore. Jesus said time and again, that master is happy who finds his servants busy not talking about their work, but doing it, actually doing it. God's interest then is in the community over individualism but, and obedience over mere knowledge. But thirdly, we find that he cultivates covenant fellowship over mere passing acquaintance. Verse 2, the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. The 
Dear ones, be sure about this. Everyone who is born into the world has a passing acquaintance with God. Many people you know will tell you they're very spiritual. They believe in God. Or they might refer to their higher power or some such thing. And then, as you talk with them about their view of things, theologically, there's often a little pause as if they expect a word of congratulation. Well, good for you. But for that passing acquaintance with God, does anyone deserve congratulation? We might as well congratulate them that they're breathing or that they're taking up space. They occupy space. Of course you believe in God. The heavens declare his glory. The firmament showeth his handiwork. Of course you have this passing acquaintance with God. How can anyone miss it? What matters isn't the bare statement of God's existence as if that were a matter for debate among reasonable, sentient beings. The question is, has he entered into covenant with us? Do I daily dwell among his special people, his special delight? Do we actually know him and not just know about him? Are we walking before him day after day? The covenant offers us and expects of us a very special and close relationship with the living God, a special calling that belongs to no other people. Special promises that belong to no other people. Special blessings that belong to no other people. He's entered into covenant with us. We're his betrothed. In a sense, God has no other people in mind than us. And certainly, we know other God than he. Fourth, and closely related to this, God cultivates intimacy with his people, not craven fear. Intimacy, not fear. Back at Horeb, back at Mount Sinai, God spoke face to face with his people. Everyone there at the foot of the mountain 38 years ago heard with their own ears the voice of God from the midst of the fire and the gloom of the mountain. And you remember the effect that it had on them. Terror gripped them. Terror. As terror grips everyone who stands before God when all the pretense is torn away and we stand as it were naked before him. The law rightly understood will do that to you. It will do that to you. It strips away all your pretense, strips away all your pretending to be good because the law is spiritual. The law is about love 
and motive and the heart. But God there made a covenant with us and one doesn't make covenant with another only to keep them at arm's length. God calls us to intimacy with him. This was his burden through the prophet Hosea toward Israel, his bride. God, through his prophet, said, Don't call me Baali, call me Ishi. Don't call me my Baal. Baal isn't my name. I want my bride to call me Ishi. My husband, my man. He's looking for intimacy with his people. The problem blocking intimacy with God, of course, is our sin. Where sin goes, the terror of God follows, and we run. Blindly, irrationally, we run from him who only wants to make things right. Now in his day, Moses mediated between the Lord God and his people. We saw that at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, didn't we? He describes his mediatorial work in verse 5 here. I stood between the Lord and you at that time. And, of course, we might add lots of other times over the next 40 years as well. Moses stood between the Lord and his people to declare to you, he says, the word of the Lord. The Lord our God cultivates intimacy with his covenant people, not only to know, but to be known. But this requires mediation between the parties. Without that mediation, the sinner flees and ultimately perishes apart from God. Moses filled a gap. Moses stepped into the breach. He was assigned to, commissioned to step into the breach for a season. But in a few more weeks or months, Moses would be dead. And that need for a mediator wouldn't go away, would it? What then? What after the death of Moses, who stood in the breach? Well, when Moses died, he left us with the office of prophet foretold in the 18th chapter of this book. We, we will get there, God willing. He left us with a priesthood in the family of his brother Aaron. He left us with a king dimly foretold in the 17th chapter of this book. Prophet, priest, king, institutions, that all very imperfectly represented men to God and God to men. 
But Moses didn't leave us and couldn't leave us with someone who can truly grip the hand of God and the hand of man and bring us together. And in the final analysis, of course, Moses wasn't that man anyway. Neither, of course, was Joshua after him. And yet, in many portions and in many ways, Moses spoke of that mediator between God and men. Faithful as a servant in God's house, Moses sketches out for us in this law, as we will see, the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your law. And we confess, as our Lord Jesus has taught us, that it all speaks of him. He kept this law. He kept it perfectly. He mediates as perfect man and perfect God mediates between you and us. And so it is in his name that we come to you with thanksgiving in our hearts. For you have taken away our sin. You've clothed us with the cloaks of his righteousness that we might appear before you and rejoice in your presence. Be glorified, we pray, among us. Build up your people in our knowledge of this, your word. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.